Welcome to Kuden, the radio show and podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Shihan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Shihan Miller is a 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sunbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Shihan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Welcome to the program. Happy Friday to those of you who are with us uh, live. It's great to have you here for another episode of Kuden. I'm Eric White, joined by Jeffrey Miller, who's somewhere on the road. I am, and happy Veterans Day to everyone who uh, has served. I appreciate it. Yeah. Brothers in arms, so to speak. Sisters in arms. Excellent. Okay. Even if that's, that's not politically correct. Happy freaking Veterans Day, anyway. <laughs> Now we've got uh we've got a number of great questions uh to get to, some comments to get to as well, but uh certainly as as we have had necessity to do seems like many times this year, uh kind of discuss current events and we're just coming off of the recent Texas church shooting and certainly uh wanna wanna get some discussion here as we talk about um you know not only these attacks happening, but happening in places you you least expect them to. Certainly, a Sunday morning at church uh, in a small town with you know what a dollar general and two stop signs or something. Uh, I'm sure none of those people ever ever could have imagined something like this happening in their small community. But um, you know, certainly uh, would love to hear your thoughts on this, sir, and, and talking about just kind of a plan of action and, uh, you know, escape, given any place. Well, you know, it is, uh, this is something we talk about all the time. I mean, if we're really training, then we need to be training to expect the unexpected, right? So, uh, and I know how that's, that's thrown around just as much as the tough guy statement of, I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried by 6. And, you know, I think that's crap as well. But, uh, you know, I, the only thing I, that I really want to say about this uh, is that uh, we all have our moments and we all have our places where we tend to forget, right? Um, I reminded my wife again last week that, that you know, she was uh, frantic about you know, the doors being locked in the house because we had some neighbors next door. We live in a very nice area, but uh, the neighbors moved next door that... I appreciate people moving up in the world, but uh, uh, they are just loud and disruptive and crap all over the place. Mm. I didn't move to where I moved to so that I could feel like I was, you know, living in a junkyard. But anyway, uh, I had to politely remind her in a very nice way because I didn't want her to go schizo on me or whatever, uh, was that, uh, you know, our front and back doors have windows and, uh, you know, you can put the locks on, but if they can break a window and reach in and undo the lock, uh, how secure are you really, right? So, yeah. uh, and I just, uh, along with this, and I'm, I'm working on one addressing the church shooter incident, but I just did one, I just published an article, uh, and I'm, uh, it's, it's going out on LinkedIn, and, uh, Facebook, and all kinds of places, so people have a chance to read it if they want, but it's through my workplace violence consultant, 
company, but uh, it was it was lessons that Tudor could teach company business owners, you know, uh, C-level executives and all that about the flaws in their workplace violence plans and training. And we we should be looking at these things uh, to find flaws or gaps or holes or whatever in our own training. So, uh, you know, a couple of things that, that just came to mind as I wrote that article was, uh, you know, just a reminder that to us, violence is random, right? We never know when it's going to happen, what shape it's going to take, how many attackers or assailants or whatever, what kind of weapons might be involved, the environment or anything like that. So it's in our best interest to make sure that we're not always training in a dojo, we're not always doing classical training, we're, you know, we're, we're making... But we're getting the lessons from the from the you know training that we're supposed to be getting, but then we need to make sure that our practice is practical, right? That it uh, it's, it's going to fit our needs, uh, whatever they may be, right? And given that we live in the 21st century, not the 13th and 15th century, uh, those needs are a little bit different, right? Uh, you know, I'm sure you remember when you were living here in the East Coast and you were in the dojo and we did stealth training. Yeah. One of the reminders that I had for everyone was that stealth training is way more difficult for us in the 21st century than it ever was for the historical ninja back in the day, right? Yeah. They didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, uh, mag lights and, and high-powered flashlights. I mean, they could hide in, in flickering shadows given off by lanterns, right? They didn't have the, the, the uh, what do you call it, the stealth detection of the day were the nose and ears of dogs, right? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we have to worry about motion detectors. We have to worry about all kinds of things, uh, regardless of whether we're trying to sneak out of our own house or, uh, you know, whatever, right? Not that I'm noting bad things, but it, the, the fact is that if you're training for stealth training today, you have to move way past just a dragon crawl or, you know, koash, nukiash, different uh, footwork patterns, things like that. Uh, yeah. Because the, the technology of the day is just very different. I mean, stealth is just much more difficult today than it was back in the day, so to speak, right? So, anyway, a couple of lessons that popped up uh, was the uh, you know the fact that it's random by nature for us, but it's not random for the assailant. Rarely, if ever, does someone just snap, right? Usually, people that we say just snap have a history of, quote-unquote, just snapping, right? They do it all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, so we need to take stock of these people and, and do less of the writing off like, yeah, you know, it's just Bob, it's just Sally, you know, they're just blowing off steam, it's just what they do. Yeah, okay, but do I need to keep myself and my family in proximity to Bob and Sally or whoever, right? So uh, Jack Hoban, a long time ago, you know Jack, right? Uh, he uh, was one of my first teachers in this art, and uh, he gave us a card a long time ago, and I still have this thing pinned to my office door, and it says that somewhere uh, in the world, someone is training to harm you. It might even say kill you, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and if you're not training and you meet this person, you will lose, right? So we have to think about this thing, right? I mean, the, the Vegas shooter... Right, the the Texas church shooter, right? These guys plan things out, right? Um, they knew what they were going to do, where they were going to do it, and all that. It wasn't a surprise to them. It was a surprise to everybody else, right? Um, 
but it wasn't a surprise to them. So we need to recognize that we're going to have to operate on the fly. And this is, you know, a lot of a lot of folks like to pick and choose their their training topics and their techniques because they like it or they don't like it or whatever. Um, you know, me, I always say nobody ever said you had to like it. But then again, I end up sounding like your dad. So um, not your dad specifically, but somebody's <laughs> dad, right? Yeah. So anyway, right? Um, so it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, when we build a house or a company builds a building or a facility or whatever, right, we have prevention things, right? But yeah. I think our society is, is too hell-bent on prevention and preventing things, you know, preventing bullying, preventing whatever. I don't know if these things can be prevented, right? I believe that they can be – somebody can be deterred from doing it to you because you're too difficult of a target, but – are you going to prevent it or are they just going to go find an easier target, right? And, and that's yeah. the point, right? So, uh, uh, you know, when we build a house or we build a building, we, you know, install wiring and all that and fires can start, right? So we do everything we can to prevent that, right? We make sure that wiring is up to code, there's nothing messed up, all the connections are right, uh, you know, inspectors come in and double-check everything. Uh, we, we do... Uh, if we're in a company area or, you know, we own a home or whatever, and let's say we have a, a little gas can like I do for my for my lawnmower, right? I keep that away from my house, right? It's in a mm-hmm. corner in my garage, right? It's, it's secluded away from things. It's away from uh, motors or anything that could throw a spark. So, you know, companies do the same thing with dangerous chemicals or flammables or whatever. They're all, you know, put away in a, in a safe area away from everybody else. So that's prevention. But we also do what, what we might call mitigation or, uh, you know, response plans as well because companies still have uh, fire drills, right? It's an ocean yeah. mandate. They have to have fire drills, right? We have fire extinguishers. We have all these things because there's still the possibility that it will happen, right? So even though we move to a nice neighborhood, we move to a quiet area, we live out in the middle of nowhere, we go, you know, we work in a company where, quote, unquote, everybody gets along. Uh, okay, great. So you've done as much as you can to minimize the possibility of something happens, right? But do, does what you do answer the question, what happens if what I've put in place so far or what I've done so far what happens if these procedures and, and whatever fails? Then what? Hmm. Okay. So, you know, and so anyway, so there's those things. There are a couple of other, uh, you know, uh, things that I put in there. One of the biggest things that that uh, uh, I throw out for company uh, people a lot is that, by and large, most of their safety and workplace violence and security things, their procedures and policies and all that, are put together by people who have never handled violent people. They've never dealt with violence. So the logic is askew, okay? Uh, and that translates over into the martial arts and self-defense world by training with people who, while they may have a lot of knowledge, they may have a black belt or multiple levels of black belts or whatever, uh, the person doesn't have any real-world experience of using what they're teaching in class on the street against somebody who's actually trying to you know, beat, break, or kill them, okay? Um, you know, I and a bunch of other folks do have that kind of training because we've either been on the battlefield or we've been 
law enforcement or whatever, and we've whipped a mushadori on somebody or, you know, hit pressure points that, you know, get somebody to shut down or we've learned very quickly that if you hit a pressure point and it doesn't do anything, you move right on to the next technique. You don't think about it. You don't second guess it. You don't wait for them to throw another punch. You just, you just do it, right? So yeah. uh, we have to be careful that we're not, you know, we're not focusing on those kind of things, right? But I, I think it all goes back to uh, constantly self-checking and, you know, uh, asking ourselves, what if what we think we know fails? Now, when it comes to the whole, you know, church shooter kind of thing, you know, here's here's part of the story that I got um, from some of the locals, some of some of the actual parishioners, right? Uh, because somebody had mentioned, you know, here's the gun-toting Texas town and all that, you know, where were all the guns and you know, all kinds of rhetoric ends up flying around, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's people with agenda that try to make it so that the, uh, you know, the NRA's at fault or whatever because they allowed the guy to buy guns. That's not where the failure happened. The failure happened with the federal background check, right? Yeah. And um, it was actually a gun-toting NRA guy that stopped him. Well, shot him and made him run away. So, uh, uh, but here's an, here's another one of those incidents. And I, I talk about a, a female police officer years ago and a couple of other incidents where these people carry on a regular basis, even off-duty, but the one time that they needed it, they decided because of either peer pressure or mom didn't like it or whatever, they left their weapon in the glove box, and that mm. was the time they needed it, right? Well, during this particular uh, Sunday, usually more people are armed, and apparently many decided that they uh, weren't going to take the weapon in, mm. and uh, for whatever reason, right, uh, you know, here it is. So, um, yeah. Did we lose you? Oh, we may have lost uh we may have lost Mr. Miller there. He's traveling on the road at the moment. If you can hear me, sir, but uh looks like we lost you. Oh. Are you with us? Keep thinking I hear him, but uh it doesn't sound like he's there. Alright, we'll give him a moment to uh join back in, but um, yeah, some good points there. I'd heard the same kind of uh, things that uh, Mr. Miller was alluding to, uh, hearing hearing about the uh, the Good Samaritan who was, was armed, or there was a couple of them, rather, that, uh, that I heard that were armed and, and were able to chase this individual off, but um, certainly uh, you can't do... <laughs> You can't do what you could do with uh, with your weapon if you do not have it on you. Uh, Mr. Miller shared that story plenty of times about uh, former officer. Uh, I believe former officer, current officer maybe still, but uh, had had a, a tragic story of that same kind of thing. Had not taken her weapon with her into a establishment. Uh, Hello. Oh, oh, you're back. Hey, All right. I'm back. Sorry about that. Somehow okay. uh, I got dropped from the call. Yeah, we lost you there. Uh, you must have gone through a dead spot or something. But uh, just kind of continuing on with uh, your line there about you, you kind of recounting the story. I've heard you tell it before about um, you know, a law enforcement officer, as you mentioned, uh, not not having their weapon on them uh, at the time they needed it. Oh, you were there and then not there. 
must be in a in a bad spot at the moment. Um, okay. Well, we're going to move on to uh, we've got some other other questions to get to while we give uh, Mr. Miller a moment to join back in on the call, but. Um, we'll, we can maybe open this up towards the end of the program today to talk more about that uh, particular shooting and, and what's happened this week. But I think it's important to note, too, that you know just because of social convention, wherever you might find yourself, that uh, it's always a good thing. Again, you know, we stress, we talk a lot about not being this overtly paranoid person, but just having a plan, uh, mentally running through a couple of notes in your head uh, about any place you walk into, uh, be it a restaurant, be it a mall, or be it, in this case, a church. Do um, you know where the exits are? Do you know how you could get out? Um, all of those things apply to any place you're at, and to just assume that there isn't possibility of a danger, uh, you could be doing yourself quite a disservice. Sounds like you're back on there, sir. I'm, I'm back again. So anyway, you started covering some of that stuff. Um, you know, make sure that you're, you're training, make sure that you reverse engineer these things and think about, how you would how you would handle it, right? And no, not just in a passing way. Run visualization uh, exercises, right? Sit down, think about the church that you go to, or the office that you work in, or a parking garage, or places that you go on a regular basis, right? And you want to have two plans, right? Plan one is being able to get out of that that area via multiple uh, pathways because you could find yourself in at any point, right? I mean, if you're in a parking garage, anything, and this is a Gyoko to you principle, right, taking any concept and breaking it into at least three things. So uh, you could be in your car, right? You could be out of your car partway to the destination point, right? And then you could be at the destination point where you're, you're breaching that and then into another area, right? So always try to find at least three things, and bodyguards do this all the time. Um, uh, can you still hear me? Yes. Okay, good. I'm just checking. So, <laughs> uh, so anyways, uh, so that, and then also, uh, you know, uh, making sure that you work it out, making making sure that you're not just uh, reverse engineering and making it theory, that you're actually processing it. Right and and keeping it top of mind. So the second thing is to um, <laughs> this is going to sound really rough, but be able to handle anybody or everybody in the room. Okay, um, we don't take anything for granted. That doesn't make us paranoid. That just means that yeah. danger. We we recognize danger can come from any direction. And again, this is something that um, I'm going to share from the consulting stuff that I do. But, you know, in, here's, here's a statistic, right? Nurses and medical professionals are 13 to 16 times more likely to be attacked on the job than a police officer, okay? That's a lot, right? That's, yeah. that's horrendous, okay? But in the, I mean, even though they're way, they're, I mean, they're like number three down the list from convenience store clerks and taxi drivers who get assaulted more often or robbed or whatever, right? And they kind of flip flop every year. Medical profession is like number three, right? Mm. Um, but the typical attacker is not a typical attacker. Okay, these are people sure. that are either uh, operating out of you know an undiagnosed psychosis, 
or they're having interactions from meds, or they're having uh, they're having uh, you know an atypical response to grief, pain, those kind of things, right? So yeah. um, it's a whole different area, right? Um, so uh, when we're when we're looking at these things, we have to recognize that that danger could come from even somebody who a few moments ago loved us and would never hurt us. Okay. That doesn't mean that we look at everyone with suspicious eyes. That means that we live the we live the the motto of Bantan Kukyo, right? Bantan Kukyo is no surprises for the ninja, right? And that means that even when you're surprised, even when somebody startles you, of course you can be startled because your attention was on something else, or they snuck up on you, or they had a well laid plan. But it's not that whether you can be startled or not startled. It's how you operate to recover from and continue from the point of being startled, right, or the point of being surprised, okay? So um, all of this is important stuff when it comes to training, not just physical techniques, not just how many weapons you have, not just thinking that you're the baddest mofo in the block, right, or whatever. So, um, you know, how would you take out that big guy that works in your office or that is, you know, a member of the church that is the, you know, he's the biggest teddy bear you've ever met. He wouldn't hurt a, per, you know, hurt a fly or whatever. Um, how would you handle that, right? How would you handle it if you were at the pool and you weren't packing that day? You were in a, hopefully you wouldn't be a speedo. I don't want to see that if you are. Um, but, um, you know, you're in swimming shorts or, you know, whatever. You got a towel wrapped around you. That's all you have. How, right? Think about these things, right? Get it in your head. Develop at least a rudimentary plan of action. Rudimentary, that's a big word. Um, just, you know, at least a basic uh, outline of, of to-do steps so that should something occur, you're not trying to make it up under pressure when the left analytical part of your brain that's really good at making plans isn't functioning so well. Hmm. How's that? Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I think of this too is just kind of we talked about uh, a couple of weeks back that we were talking about stealth walking on different surfaces and just you know kind of incorporating these other elements of training into your just everyday lives. You can work on these things in any given environment. It it, it just becomes kind of second nature. Um, you know, we're not overly paranoid people, but uh, you know, whenever you, whenever you step into a restaurant, you're just you're just kind of at nature aware of where the exits and entries are and uh, all those Absolutely. sorts of things and position and yourself places. accordingly. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, it kind of uh, alarms people sometimes. Uh, you know, I can think of a, a time when I first started working uh, where I'm at now and I was talking to one of, uh, one of the people here and, you know, just, I think made a remark of like uh, something like, oh, let me borrow your clip knife for a minute, uh, opening a box. And he looked at me like, how do you know I have a clip knife? Uh, and it's just because I uh, look for those things. <laughs> I noticed that, you know, just right away, I'm not searching for those things, but it's just one of those those things. Your, your eye scans people, or at least mine does. And I know immediately, uh, okay, he's got a clip knife, uh, he's right-handed and all those kinds of things, and, and and again, it's not an overly paranoid sort of thing. But as you as you work to make yourself more aware of those things, it just kind of becomes part of what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that kind of reminds me of the uh, uh, remember the movie The Born. Um, what was it called? The Born, not Born Identity, right? Was that the first one? 
I think that was the first when one. When he had amnesia? Yeah, okay. Sure, yeah. So when, when he's sitting in that, sure, okay, when he's sitting in that restaurant <laughs> and, he, you know, he's, he said something and the, the woman who was with said, oh, great, your memory's coming back. He said, no, I mean, I, I, I have no idea why I know these things. I mean, looking out in the parking lot, I know that that vehicle over there probably has the keys in it, so if I needed to get out of here, that would be the first first place I'd look, right? That one over there has a weapon in it, right? I know that I can run for a mile and a half before uh, my lungs are taxed. I know that the guy sitting over at the bar, um, the, the big guy over there, while he looks out of shape, can handle himself. You know, I, I, so I know these things. I just don't know how I know these things. We don't need to have the amnesia, right? But this is this is one of those things where, you know, this is, and again, we keep mentioning that it's not paranoia. It's not paranoia. It's a sense of knowing. It's like hopping into your car, putting the keys in the ignition without looking at where the ignition slot is and the steering wheel's in your way. You just know where it is, right? You know where the accelerator pedal is or the clutch or whatever without looking and without having to feel your way around. You know how to make adjustments. Uh, you know, a big truck goes by you and maybe the weather's a little off and there's high winds and there's more of that vacuum or air pressure against your car or your truck and it starts to shift and you just instinctively just know how to counter that right yeah um you know when you're driving down the road you just without even looking at lights you know the engine doesn't feel right or there's a door open or whatever right and just you just know huh so um that's that kind of thing, right? And if we can do that with driving a vehicle, why can't we do that when we're, you know, um, living our lives? Because nothing makes you more relaxed and more comfortable in whatever surrounding you're in than to know that you can handle yourself. And I don't no. mean having a belief that you can handle yourself. I mean knowing that you can handle yourself. You have a plan. You have multiple plans. You have skills that cover a wide range of things. When you look at people, right, you just do a quick scan of their body. It's not a, it's not a paranoid thing. You're just looking them up from, you know, head to, head to toe. Part of it's just being aware, right? So you can mention, hey, you've got new shoes. Nice, right? But at the same time, from experience, I know that certain shoes on certain uh, floor materials are going to slide. Certain ones are going to stick. Certain, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. certain types of clothing, right, certain clothing styles. I could wear a pair of jeans and somebody next to me could be wearing a pair of jeans, but one of us is going to be able to kick higher than the other one because of the fit of the jeans, right? So slim fits are always good. I love when people dress that stylish because yeah. uh, I don't care what they've learned martial art-wise. If the kicking style doesn't match the clothing style, I have an advantage, <laughs> right? right? And, again, it's not, you know, in the beginning it's going to seem like it's a lot because we're trying to remember what to look for, recognize that thing, remind ourselves to look in a certain direction or whatever. But it was just like driving. Right? I'll go back to that analogy. When we all first learned to drive, it was a bit overwhelming, no matter how cool we tried to make it look, right, because we had to manage steering, we had to manage braking, we had to check the mirrors, we had to, you know, watch oncoming traffic, we had to remember uh, to slow down at a certain point based on the speed we were going so that we could stop at that red light or stop sign, uh, you know, smoothly and easily without jerking the car, you know, all those things, right? We had to remember turn signals. We had to, some people still don't. But anyway, we yeah. had to remember these things, right? And now 
you know, my, my daughter's learning how to drive now and, you know, I'm, uh, I'm turning into something and she's watching what I'm doing. And last week she looked at me and said, how do you just like stick a finger out and it catches the, the, um, uh, turn signal, right? Uh, when you're turning it on and when you're turning it off, you turn it off while you're still turning in the turn. How do you how do you do that? Well, you know, I'm, one, I'm too lazy to like, or not, not too lazy. I just I've forgotten a couple of times, and then you look goofy, you know, driving five miles down the road with your left turn signal on or whatever. So I just <laughs> you know just extend it out. One, I know where it is. I know my vehicle. Uh, same with knowing all of your equipment, you know. And it's just you know how it is, right? It's just really smooth. Yeah. And some people look at you like, that was magic. No, mm-hmm. I used to do it like you, right? Just, you know, we have to remind all of our students, I used to do it just like you. I'm surprised my teacher didn't kill me, right, with how <laughs> unaware I was, you know. Um, but anyway, so, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and unfortunately, like you said, these situations keep popping up. Um, yeah. So it gives us no end to fodder. It's not like you and I look for these situations. They just pop up. It's worth addressing, but see, here's that here's that positive, negative, the yin-yang, both sides are always working at the same time. Unfortunately, in the world, violence exists, and it exists at just a high degree, whether we want to admit it or not, whether it's verbal or emotional or physical or whatever, it exists. But on the fortunate side is you have lots of lots of study material. There's no end to you know, the different variations of how human beings will lash out to harm their fellow human beings. So you shouldn't have to look very far. Yep. Right? So instead of jumping around YouTube or whatever, adding to the number of techniques that you're still working on and not proficient with, right, how about looking at things from a strategic and tactical standpoint and looking at these real-world scenarios? Because I promise you, once one person does it, even if it's new, in a week or a month, a bunch of other people are going to be doing the same thing. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, nothing stays secret or new for very long at all. So you might as well prep for it. All right. Well, if there are questions or comments kind of to follow up on that, uh, we can kind of get to that towards towards the end of the program. But I want to roll into a question here we got from Steve Davis, um, and he asked if we could talk about Henka. And he no. says he thinks he has the term. <laughs> no, no, moving on. <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> we cannot. <laughs> <laughs> or as I said before the call, I have no idea what he's talking about. I'm just going to make it up. Uh, <laughs> <That's here. laughs> but, um, you know, does he have the term correct, he asks, uh, meaning a variation of a kata or a waza, and when should we use henka, why should we use it? Um, so uh, he'd like to know if it's a spur-of-the-moment thing or previously thought-up variation, or is it both? Yes. <laughs> I talked a lot That's about the church right. thing. I'm just going to end it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is both. Um, but there is a huge difference between Henka and what a lot of people are doing, which is just doing whatever the hell you want. Uh, yeah. I can't tell you the number of times I've trained with Hatsumi Sensei or uh, one of the Japanese master teachers, and they make a point of saying that this is something a Henka uh, is very different from just doing whatever. Okay? For a lot of folks, Henka is, you know, I'm going along and I'm, half-ass with my taizu, 
things go amiss, so I just do whatever, and that's a henka. No, that's not a henka. It's a completely different thing. If it works out, okay, good technique, but it's not a henka. A henka, which means henka means variation or uh, change or whatever, but what makes a henka a henka is that it's a variation on a technique that still allows the technique with that given name, say on whatever, right, that mm -hmm. it still does the same thing even though you're punching a different target, even though you are capturing with a different lock or whatever, it still takes them in the same direction. It still does the same thing. So if the base kata that we're working with, right, delivers a punch to the solar plexus, to Godin, right, and that mm -hmm. holds the person forward so you can shift around and catch them in a, uh, a ganseki and you throw them, right, a forward hip throw, right? The kata is showing you that, look, this shot here causes this response. His weight and, and momentum and everything from the upper body suddenly comes flying forward. So you just shift around here and catch this and send them on their way because it lives to the, to the lesson in the scrolls that says never do a technique that's not already working. Okay? We don't do things. We catch things. Mm. Okay? And when you do do something, what you're doing is you're creating motion and you're creating response so that you can catch that and send them on their on their way. So if he's not doing something, you make him do something. But anyway, so right. So uh, again, we had the punch of the solar plexus, and we catch his arm to do a gonseki, right? But maybe as he comes in with that one thing where we're supposed to be hitting the solar plexus, the angle of his torso is too profiled. Godin's not right in front of us, okay? So what else could I hit that will cause his torso to move forward the same way and, if possible, re-square it so that I can do Ganseki, right? So I could, point, I could hit Koi, which is that hip junction, right, the, the fold of the hip where the thigh plugs into the torso, right? Mm. I could hit mm. that because that will suddenly make his, his torso fly forward. And because I'm hitting the lead uh, Koi, it'll cause his torso, his hips and everything, to also counter-rotate, right? So it brings his chest back around and all that. So I can slip back in and finish with a gun set. There it is, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the shot to the koi instead of the goading is a henka, right? It's a variation. But maybe everything is working, right? And so I hit goading and all that, but I shift around and I feel that I don't have gun right? There's no way to get my leg in front of his to check it, to to um, uh, prevent him from stepping and all that. So instead of Ganseki, I apply Musodori, right, that vertical dropping armbar kind of thing, right? Or I slip into Ogyaku or something like that, that still all of these things lock up the shoulder and control the direction of the torso to bring him down onto his face, right? Mm -hmm. Ogyaku, Ganseki, and Musodori, all work off of the same principle, right? Even though you're moving the arm differently and the technique looks different, right? It's still the same thing, okay? It's because we're working off of the kotsu or the essence of the technique. So to properly do henka, we have to understand the essential nature hmm. of the technique. And what that means is answering the question, why? Why am I striking here? Why am I catching this person to throw him in that direction? 
Now, it could just be that we're working on what we would put all the way up to need on, which means I'm just going with the flow and I just want this guy off of me, in which case you're really not doing a kata, right? You're doing you're doing rondori. You're just catching and, and sending, right? Um, but on the uh, on the flip side, right, uh, Does it is it something that happens in the spur of the moment? Yes, it happens in the spur of the moment. So, we can we can manufacture it in the dojo to work possible variations on a theme, so that we can plug those uh, those potentials into our subconscious storehouse. That way, when we're in a situation, they're likely to come out. We, we're not going to have to be fishing around for something, or you know, start out smooth, and then the next thing you know, something doesn't work for us, and then we start to struggle. Okay, but at the same time, uh, you know, on the fly. Right when uh, when when things are happening uh, on the street, there are these things as well. But the, it's still the same. It still works the same because on the street, I have an um, I have a primary goal. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm a police officer, I want this guy face down on the ground, so it's going to be easy to do a quick search and get him into cuffs. Okay, or over the hood of a car or whatever. Okay. Um, you know, if somebody's uh, trying to break into my house, I want him out the door. Or, you know, we make uh, we make talk sometimes about the dojo invader, right? So mm-hmm. I want him out a door, right? The closest one to me. So anything that I do needs to send him in that direction, right? So it still has to fit the 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 um, what do you call them? It has to fit the plan, okay? So the change is a change to the not to the plan, it's a change to the form. It's a swapping out of things, right? Uh, one of the ways I introduce Henka to students is, let's say we're working Jumonji um, no Kata, okay? Uh, for those of you who don't know that, we're starting off at a Jumonji no Kamai. It's kind of like this old uh, pre-1920s, 30s, pre-boxing glove era, uh, bare-knuckle boxing kind of position where, uh, you know, he throws a punch, we shift back into Ichimonji, do this little counter-strike to a pressure point in his arm, that opens a, 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 a window that we can come in with this boshi can, this thumb drive, and hit uh, the, the floating rib and then throw a distraction to stall the other hand and then back away. So what I might do for students that have learned that model is now what we're going to do is we're going to counter-strike the arm and shift in and run the boshi can into koe instead of into butsumetsu. Either way, I'm causing his body to stop. I'm causing him to have to recover his structure to be able to throw the next punch or kick, right? Maybe we don't do that. Now we do the counter strike and we come in and we invert the fist and, and go inside the, uh, the shoulder socket and hit that point that's inside of there, okay? Or we rock forward and we, you know, catch him in the side of the neck or uh, at the windpipe or at the uh, uh, asugasumi, the, the point of the chin. Right, all these things. It's as long as we're fit, as long as we're sticking to the nature or the essential, yeah, the essential nature of the technique, the kotsu, which is one of the three primary things, right? Um, then, uh, then we're good. It's it's a it's a good henka. If we do something that causes him to do something else, that causes a different response, then it's a different technique. Hmm. Okay, so uh, hopefully that makes sense to him. I don't know if he's on the call today or not because I'm driving and you've got the, the thing there. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, hopefully that makes sense. 
you know, and, and we also have to understand, again, this word is thrown around a lot, like warriorship, like enlightenment, whatever, right? That was a hanko. I was like, okay, maybe, right? Um, I'm not going to split hairs with people. But we also have to remember that what a lot of people call henka are not henka, they're waza, or they're something called an uda, right, U-R-A, right, which means the mm-hmm. back or hidden side of something, okay? But, again, we have to understand what the primary thing is for something to be an uda, like uda gyaku, right? Uda gyaku, mm-hmm. that inside wrist reversal, right, it's called uda gyaku. It's still a, it's still a wrist reversal. Are you still on? Yes. Okay, good. I heard a beeping or something on my phone. So anyway, um, it's it's an uda gyaku. It's a it's a backside or hidden reversal, and a lot of people translate that to mean we're just taking you in the opposite direction than we do for almost a gyaku, right? The frontal or primary, or the obvious reversal, right? Um, so what gives, right? But but it doesn't, right? We have to understand what almost a gyaku is doing, right? which is taking the person off the balance line that's created by the line of the heels, or if we ran a line through the middle of the feet, right through the arches, just under and in front of the ankles, right? But typically it's the heels, right? It's easier to take somebody off their heels because we don't have toes out there that can adjust, right? It's just easier, right? The legs lock faster in that direction. The spine locks up faster. We take them off their heels. It's easier to take them off balance. That's why this is the frontal obvious one. But Uda Gyaku, taking somebody forward, is not just taking them forward. It's about that balance line and recognizing that in Omote Gyaku, the balance line for a person is right up against the heels. It's right up against the feet, okay? Mm-hmm. But to the front, it's not. It is where, uh, where that balance line is, right, where your ankles are, under your arches, plus, so your legs standing straight up, plus the length of your torso and head out in front of you, okay? So that's where the balance line is, because if you put an omotegyaku or an uragyaku on somebody, this inside wrist reversal, right, the quickest way for him to neutralize that and give himself time is just to fold over from the waist. He'll bend over, right, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. what allows us to do basic rolling from a wrist reversal at, uh, you know, at mod two, because the person can bend over and go, and, and the person is delivering it, doesn't really understand how it works as well, so, but it's going to work against a good percentage of people because they're going to they're going to resist and tense up uh, as soon as you start applying it. So we're going to apply damage to the wrist, but it's really not about that. Right? What it is, it's about applying the wrist lock during uragyaku so in a way that locks up the elbow and the shoulder and therefore controls the spine and immobilizes the feet. So he can't bend forward, and it moves the balance line from out there where he would be bent over all the way back to his feet again. Hmm. So it's about understanding the nature of it. Otherwise, you know, and then if we understand that, then we get to understand that Gansekinage, Musodori, Ogyaku, and a couple of other techniques are variations. They're Henka of Uragyaku, because they all work off of the Uragyaku principle, just like Osotonage, Osotogake, Hanegosh, and some of these other techniques are all Henka, or variations, even though they have their own names, they're all variations of Omotegyaku, the outside wrist reversal, 
because they take the person off their heels just like Omotegyaku. Hmm. Right? If they're not, then you're not doing it right. So, uh, again, it's, it's a matter of understanding more than just the mechanics. But, of course, the mechanics are where we start. So being able to do it half the time is better than not being able to do it at all, but we want to work it up to where you understand that you're doing more than just rotating his wrist. Okay, a lot of people like to call those techniques wrist twists. They're not wrist twists. Right? They're not. They're a reversal of the mechanics that allow that wrist to work. That's why they're called gyakute, hand reversals. They're not called wrist twists or whatever. That's uh, like kote gaish. Kote is wrist or forearm, and gaish is to turn something over. Right, and that looks completely different. Right, it's it's something you see in Aikido and, and those kind of things, right? So a uh, gyakute is not the same as a, as a kote or any other geish, right? Mm. Um, so anyway, uh, hopefully that helps Steve a little bit. He was on the right track, and, um, yeah, so it is both. It is uh, something that you can manufacture to increase the number of options and variants or variables that you have with any given kata, any given model. The whole Kihon Hapo principle is about henkai. You take any model, you produce eight variations from that model, and then you take every variation and you produce eight variations from that, and every variation of that you produce until the base eight become, or that base one, becomes just another option among options. Right? So the whole thing works off of henkai principle, but we have to understand what we're varying to begin with. Yeah, right? and then of course on the fly, right? We have to have a, we have to have a, a primary plan, right? Where do we want this person to end up, right? Of course the plan could just be to get this guy off of me, but how does that stop him from coming back, right? So what Kata teach are situation resolution or conflict resolution, right? Hmm. If we go through three levels of our training, the first level is basics, which really focuses on focuses on mechanics. And it focuses on me or you, the individual student. So you're not really worried about him. He throws a punch or a grab or a kick, and great. That's your impetus to move, but you're really focusing on proper alignment, your proper body structure, you know, balance, and, and that your limbs are where they're supposed to be and all that. It's all mechanics, right? You focus on you. And we like yeah. to think that we're working a whole self-defense situation, but what we're really learning how to do is make ourselves less uh, of a target for his next, for his follow-up, okay? So that's mechanics. And then we roll into dynamics. So mechanics include kamai, body movement, striking, that kind of thing, right? Um, yeah. Grappling is not on our list of things because grappling is just a combination of, because striking is limb extension, right? Kamai is about posture, and body movement is about transitioning and moving from kamai to kamai without losing the benefits of kamai. So... Uh, you know, if I'm doing uh, uh, if I'm doing uh, dynamics, that that kind of thing, right? It's it's combining those things with energy conservation in mind, with a defense to offense transition kind of thing in mind, or offense defense transition in mind, and the ability to move from point A to point B, from kamai to kamai, while I'm evading or doing my techniques without losing the benefit of kamai. I mean, that's senundo, enundo, mm -hmm. and kionapo in a nutshell, right? So 
So that's the second level of training because you're focusing on timing, distancing, angling, uh, appropriate use of space and all that. But the attention, the focus, where, where the level one focus is on me and my body parts and, and getting the form right, level two, the focus is on him because everything I do is relative to everything he does. So I need to know my level one mechanics well enough to not have to think about them. So if he does what he's doing, I can fit in, right? And I can fit yeah. in perfectly with what he's doing. Level three, staging or intent, is really where kata training belongs. Because if you look at your kata, your kata you have kata defending against uh, punches or kicks or stabs or weapon strikes or whatever. You have ones that are defending against um, grabs, holds, locks, throws, you know, jutaijutsu, grappling, what most people call grappling, those kind of things. And then you yeah. have kata that are against combinations, hmm. right? He may grab you, then punch. He may, you know, whatever, right? So, uh, but if you look at all of our kata across nine schools, how many kata start the exact same way? Right? Hmm. A lot, mm -hmm. right? Because it's just about, okay, you're picking up a fight already in progress. Here comes this yeah. thing, and now there's this opening. But all the kata end a different way. So what right. the kata are really showing is how to do things in a certain way to put him in a certain place. So they have to start with an end point in mind. So they really are for, uh, you know, their, their role models or their, or their expert role models for the aspiring students, but they are also bad habit breakers for the intermediate student, and they're examples of how a master would do it from a very high level, somebody that's already got all their shit together, so to speak, right? Does that make sense at all? Yeah, and I liked earlier, you know, you kind of keyed in on this word goals, you know, having a goal in mind. And, I, you know, I think of this as, okay, what's the goal of the given technique or purpose and how that can be expanded to, you know, just outside of uh, physical techniques to things like, uh, you know, goal achievement. There's there's henka in the paths you take to achieve any kind of goal out there. So uh, I like that. That's yeah. a great way to put yeah. it. There's, no, there's got to be a goal in When you're training also, yeah, when you're training also, Remember I said your training has to be practical. Let's not forget that there is a there is an initial or uh, original intent on the part of your assailant, right? Somebody who's super, super good at wrestling and grappling and taking to the ground isn't going to suddenly out of nowhere, you know, become a golden glove boxer. Hmm. He's not, right? And somebody mm -hmm. that intends to... Uh, you know, shove you up against the wall, slam you into things, or drop you on the ground and choke the life out of you, um, isn't going to do things that move you away from that direction, right? So his arms come in, you do maybe a lifting double uh, blocking kind of strike to Hulko, knock his arms away, and then shove him away from you, right? Um, he doesn't suddenly not want to put you on the ground, right? right? He may change the way he wants to put you on the ground, but it doesn't, it doesn't change, right? So somebody who's looking to dominate you will continue to try to dominate you. If they can't, they will run away and reassess, right? Somebody that's only trying to hold you up and mug you, while they may panic and try to do something worse or whatever, chances are, you know, they're, 
it's a it's a lower level attack, right? I mean, give me your freaking wallet. Personally, I don't carry one, and two, I don't keep my money there. That it's, they're kept in my wife's purse. So if they if somebody mugs me, um, they're going to be losing twice because I'm taking twenty bucks out of their freaking wallet because I don't give free classes. So anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so we have to think about original intent as well. And what I see often in classes and training when it comes to Rondori is you know, because the, the training partner who's playing the role of the attacker doesn't have any fight experience or they don't have, you know, they're not out to hurt their partner, they'll start with one thing and then change 15 different times. Or, mm. you know, they throw a punch, the partner shifts out of the way and maybe snatches the arm, and then all of a sudden this person com- becomes a completely different fighter. Very yeah. few people in this world can change tactics like that. We're trying to train to do that. I mean, think about it. Most people have, are really good at one type of tactic or technique or fight style, right? Even if it's, you know, flail, right, because they, they don't have any training. <laughs> sure. Um, most people are really good at one. Some people have a decent backup, right? That's what MMA people try to get good at, right, mm. punching and uh, grappling and stuff like that, right? So uh, very few, very few have a third or a second secondary backup. Right? Yeah. Yeah. We have nine different schools. That means nine different approaches to resolving the same scenario. If you train and study, I mean, if you can do all nine, great. But, I mean, it would take you a lifetime to master one of these things. But then that's why the Bujinkan is a kind of the best of. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but um, you know, think about it. If you if you really focus on this and you understand what it is that you're looking at, and it's not just a collection of techniques like a box full of different colored marbles, right, that you're looking at strategic application or a tactical application. You're looking at strategic thinking and uh, situational control and all that stuff, right? You would literally have the capacity, the capability of changing tactics, changing strategies and whatnot in a fight or in an attack situation nine times. Mm. Who can keep up with that? Right? So if you're doing one thing and it's not working, don't do that one thing harder. Switch. If that's not working, switch again. Mm-hmm. It's not going to take you more than one or two switches for this guy to run out of options. Okay? So, um, but, for, but when we're training, we want to remember that the attacker had an original intent. Right? If he's reaching out and grabbing me in Kumuch, let's, let's use a classical model. So he has his right hand on my lapel and his left hand on my sleeve. Classically, this is not a judo thing. Judo was invented by Jotaro Kano in the late 1800s. Okay? Uh, Kumiuch, this grab was designed to keep the person who was being grabbed from accessing his swords. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay? So now in modern times, how would we grab someone most effectively? to keep them from going for a, a, a handgun that's in a shoulder rig or going for a standard hip, uh, you know, position uh, or whatever, right? How would we keep the thug from going into his waistband or into the hoodie pocket, which, by the way, is by far the number one and number two places where people that are in that socioeconomic uh, or mentality, right, uh, mm-hmm. that are in that mm-hmm. position carry a weapon because, you know, they're just not going to afford a holster. Holsters don't hang out really well on uh, sweatpants or on pants that are hanging down around mid-thigh. It mm-hmm. doesn't work very well. 
So, um, so how would you how would you latch on to somebody or work to immobilize them? But again, we're looking at essence. We're looking at what was being taught, because we're not just learning techniques as models. We're also supposed to be learning to think the way these master warriors thought. Yeah. What is the technology? What's the strategy? Right? Why are you doing it this way? Why this way now to that part of their body? If you can't answer those, then you will forever be stuck in big form training, right? what I call training wheel training. Right? Um, one other teacher calls it, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, the idiot models. Right? It doesn't mm. mean it in a bad way. It's just that you wouldn't fight from that position because you're not wearing armor, you're not dealing with long-range weapons, you're not, why would you put something out there that this guy can grab a hold of or strike, right? We don't put anything sure. into the Kukan that we're not willing to give up for the rest of our lives. I don't care what hmm. the style says. Do you learn it? Of course you learn it because there's lots of lessons there. But the big introductory level kata models are yeah. done a certain way yeah. because they're big, right? It's easy to see when you've made a mistake. Right? It's not so easy when you're moving around in Shizen like Hatsumi Sensei or like Nagato or any of these other senior Japanese instructors. Right? Ultimately, we want to move around in Shizen Tai or Shizen, right? but Ichimonji sneaks out. Jumonji sneaks out. But in the blink of an eye, so this person can never see what you're doing, if you hang out in level one transmission training, you are no different from the karate guy that everybody makes fun of and says that would never work. Why? Well, because he can see what everybody can see what you're doing. I mean, you've got this hardline form. Well, duh. So does everybody else. So does everybody in the booting gun. Not everybody, mm. but right. So, but again, we don't want to start out on the other direction either, where we have no reference points because right. one, we can't recreate a mistake, and two, how do you know that you're doing it right if you don't have any reference points? Yeah. Right. Hmm. How do you know that you're covered? How do you know that you're safe? Hatsumi Sensei doesn't have to take up these positions because he's always just freaking out of range for you <laughs> and always just in range for him to do whatever he wants. Mm. Okay? And while some people are, are immensely intuitive, right? I can't, I'm not going to say they can't do it that way, but that's not the norm. That's the exception. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So... Well, anyway. we uh, we are just about out of time, but I did want to mention uh, some comments that came in. We got one from Cody Jones, and uh, this is this probably kick off a, a great uh, number of future calls. But uh, he says he recently just discovered the program and that he's found them interesting and fun to listen to, and uh, a great way to supplement his training. And um, he he's looking at uh, he likes how you know a lot of times that you're looking at practical application uh and not just uh kind of combing over traditional technique and just kind of some of what what you were hitting on just there um likes the atmosphere and that we're not always so serious as well which i don't know if we were ever serious but anyway uh <laughs> we'll laugh at everyone including he's cody. Got... hey cody hopefully you bought something nice with that check that we sent you for saying nice things about it so i appreciate it yeah, yeah. Now, great, great, now let's see how comment. many people write in to see how much we pay for positive reviews, right? Sure. That was a joke, everybody. However, <laughs> um, anyway. Super secret anyway, uh, transmission ebook I will give to you. After <laughs> yeah. Only $5,995. Yeah. 
Uh, <laughs> right. But he, he does have a question, and we'll definitely have to get to this in future shows. But he is asking about um, just kind of the background and history on some of uh, the nine schools of the Bujinkan, from Gyokoryu to Gikanryu, and which one's the oldest. And, uh, you know, we've been over these in kind of series of, of Kudens as he'll discover as he's going through some of the past episodes. There's many out there. You know, we're, we're 30 plus in uh, of, of these. But, um, you know, I think he'll 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 discover some of the background there, but um, you know, coming up future programs, we can maybe kind of run through a quick little series on on each one as we go go through the programs in the future. Oh, all right, let's keep him happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said such nice yeah, things. Uh, uh, yeah, going through, I mean, there's there's no way to go through the nine to the degree of uh, the extent of the question that he asked, uh, or even one at the moment. Uh, but I would like to toss out some references because it never ceases to astound me, and I'm sure you too when you go to Japan and, and talk to some of these folks, never ceases to, to amaze me as to how many people have never been to some of the historical reference points or sites yeah. and things like that that are mentioned in Hatsumi Sensei's books, in the Hayes books and all that kind of stuff, right, that are part of our history, right? Um, people are always, you know, surprised, right? Well, I know it exists, but... I've never been there. I mean, you know, it's just it's just a place, right? And then I talk about some of the history, and they go, nobody, nobody's ever explained it this way. And, of course, you know what my response is, uh, not my fault, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Uh, so the other thing that astounds me is the number of instructors out there not citing from or recommending some of Hatsumi Sensei's books or some of these other books that are out there because of the historical references and some of these other things, right? So uh, one of the ones that comes to mind, and I think it's still available out there, it was, it's a very slim book. It was originally sold as a spiral bound. I don't know if it's changed or not. Uh, maybe you can find it somewhere, right? Uh, it was a book called The uh, Nine Schools of the Bujinkan, real simple, right? Um, very brief history of the, uh, the lineage of the Grand Masters, and uh, the formation, where it, found, where it formed, where it came from, and stuff like that. Uh, other people have added things along the way to these things, and you'll have to look, kind of ferret it out. Uh, one of the first things I was taught in, uh, in the art was you're going to have to steal this art, right? You're just going to have to – there's so much. You're going to have to take something that somebody says and do your own kind of research and all that. But Nine Schools of the Bujinkan, it was written by uh, Paul Richardson. Paul Richardson, he's uh, from the U.K., Right? So it's a good place to start. And then uh, there's a lot of historical references made in Hatsumi Sensei's book, Essence of Ninjutsu. And there's way more, including further quotes in the back of the book from all the footnotes and, you know, those little numbers that are put next to things and all that. Don't discard or don't just skip over those things because uh, the book written by uh, Kasem Zagari on, um, on uh, the, um, what do you call it? on the uh, oh, Ninjutsu, right? I can't remember the name of it. Art of the Ninjutsu or the Art of the Ninja or something like that uh, by Kasem Zaguri. He's a doctor, right? He's a uh, classical studies, studied uh, martial arts and Japanese uh, history and warfare and all that stuff, right? Uh, he's looked at documents that most of us would uh, only drool to be a part of or to, to, to get. And so uh, I highly, highly recommend that one. And uh, I don't know a couple of other Hatsumi Sensei's books, but uh, start collecting and, and reading through these things. If Cody, if you like history, 
to the extent that you say you like history, um, yeah, go get these things, right? Uh, there was another one, Al, that was called Shinobi Wins or something. It's not a book. It's a hmm. DVD, kind of a documentary that uh, somebody had done a couple of years ago, another good place. And also um, the tribute DVD that Hakumi Sensei did uh, uh, for Takamatsu Sensei, his teacher, hmm. right? Hmm. Um, watch that. Okay, there's there's references. And, you know, there's, there's sneaky things that Hakumi Sensei's hidden in, in lots of places. Like on the back of the Gyoko Ryu Koshijutsu DVD. Okay? I know most people can't read Japanese, me either. But the cool thing is you can do a scan of this stuff, right? Do a little scan on your four in one printer and then plug that into Google Translate and ta-da, you've got English or whatever your base language is, right? But in that little snippet in the back, it suggests that the Gyoko Ryu was founded or based in and came from Mount Kumano. Kumano? Kudama. Kumano, right? Which is south and a little bit, uh, I can't remember, east or west. It's a ranch in the ring of mountains surrounding Kyoto, okay? Hmm. This is the same mountain where uh, the founder of Reiki had his divine intervention and discovered the healing lessons that were in scrolls, right? Well, he was, uh, he was, uh, went on this little refuge or whatever, right? and was going through this stuff and made this discovery, right? So it's interesting that the Gyoko-Yu, which is an, a martial arts embodiment of our Mikyo teachings, had a headquarters, right, in this thing, right? And, again, if you look at history, and you can't just look at ninja history or Bujinkan history or whatever. You need to look at Japanese history. So if Hatsumi Sensei gives you a time period or era, do some historical research about light, what life was like then. Like, one of the reasons that Mikio might have been hidden within this martial system is the fact that the ruling elite was trying to wipe out this philosophy because it was a philosophy of being self-governing and personal empowerment and all that during a time when there was heavy and strict governmental rule, right? So here's all these little drivers and stuff, right? So these are just little things that I've gleaned along the way. I am by no means a historian. I've got other friends that are just much better in that direction. But I would highly suggest that you start reading and looking at things um, from a different perspective. And, um, and, and maybe this isn't about Cody, but for everybody, don't just jump to the chapter where Hasumi Sensei is demonstrating techniques. Yeah. Okay. Uh, th there's a reason that things were done the way they were done, Right? There's a reason that we catch a sword with Shuko, where we catch them and how and why and how we do uh, what we do. And it's all wrapped around the fact that during that era or during that, that point in history, um, the only swords that were sharpened from the boshi, from the tip all the way to the handguard, were ninja swords. Right? Samurai swords were only sharpened about a third of the way to half the way down the sword because that was the working part. So we're catching close to the handguard, not just because of leverage and power, but also because that blade won't cut through the band of the shuko. Right? Mm. If you catch in the wrong place or if it were sharpened all the way down, a samurai sword will go through the metal band of shuko. Mm. So, you know, uh, and just understanding these little things. Uh, so anyway, it's yeah. uh, hopefully that's a good start. Uh, we can, we'll continue to mention things along the way. Uh, but it's a lot. It really yeah. is a lot. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, uh, you're, 
I'll, I'll continue to toss things out, but um, we, we, we take literally episodes. And if there's a call for it, maybe I could put together an, an online program or something like that that people could go through. Um, but, again, I would still only be scratching the surface. Yeah. Right? Um, so, anyway. Thanks for the <laughs> it's question, funny you mentioned about uh, how few kind of dive into that history when they when they make those visits to Japan. I get that the last time I was there. Uh, somebody I was working with in, in a class had uh, asked me why I wasn't at the class previous um, because I'd seen him in several mm. other classes. I get asked that all the time. Yeah, I said, oh, I, I was, uh, I went up to the the Nagano area to uh, go up to Tagakushi, and he goes, why'd you go all the way out there? <laughs> and it's, it's kind of hit me like, oh yeah, I guess everybody isn't doing this. Uh, you certainly yeah, don't run into no. folks when you go up there, but I, uh, so I had to explain I to him people... why I did that. <laughs> yeah. So the founding of the Togakure school, right, is all based on this whole idea. Even the name, Concealing Doors, based on this legend, right? And so where do I take you guys? I take you to the top shrine, this Shinto shrine that's actually built out of the cave mm-hmm. that this legend is all wrapped around, right? And um, how this warrior used Ninjutsu to manipulate the sun goddess to take the world out of darkness because she was pissed off at the sins of man and all that, right? So I take you to this place. So it's not just a story. It's you're looking into the cave where supposedly the sun goddess hid herself away and it was it's it's a part of the it's a part of the story, the background story and the legend of Togakure school. I mean, here it is, right? We're gonna bring it to life. So anyway. And, yeah. and it's just it's a powerful <laughs> thing. I I think it's a powerful thing if we're going to immerse ourselves into it and, you know, um understand it more or or experience the depth of the training and the lifestyle rather than just having it just be another one of those, uh, I don't know, puzzle pieces that get put together, right? I think people tend to live their lives where everything is compartmentalized, right? Their martial arts training is their martial arts training, but they forget it when they leave the dojo and they walk the way they walk out in the world and whatever. When they go in the dojo, oh, everything is graceful and perfect, right? Mm -hmm. But out in the world, they're running into things, tripping over things, they're not aware, um, you know. They don't pay attention to uh, thing, whatever, right? It's just it's everything's compartmentalized. So their historical training in the art is compartmentalized. If they even got any, if their teacher even pointed pointed any of this stuff out, or if they're simply going to class because it's all about physical training, or it's all about classical training, or it's whatever. I mean, and I can understand why Hasumi Sensei said that, you know, for a long time we're going to do Budo Tajutsu and, you know, that's what people have been calling it, right? Budo Tajutsu. Well, Budo Tajutsu means body skills for martial ways. Okay, great. So now you're doing a martial art. Nimpo Tajutsu means something completely different. It's body skills for what? Surviving and enduring. That's not just for fighting. That's not just for defending against, uh, you know, physical attacks, right? It's how do I produce the greatest results in my life with the least amount of effort? How do I take these ancient lessons and transform them into something that I can use to literally work magic in the modern world? Yeah. Because anything that's significantly advanced that the common person doesn't understand, is it looks just like magic. So, except we're not doing the illusionary magic. 
we're doing things in a way that people look at and go, how the hell did you do that? Ancient Chinese secret. <laughs> <laughs> so, All anyway, right, we're running we uh, dangerously close to uh, our recording time being cut off here, so um, not really got a good opportunity, yeah, <laughs> to get to, to a lot of questions here, but I would, I would, so I would, Kind of direct everybody if you if you have questions, uh, certainly submit them through the Kuden podcast page. You can message us your questions. I do see Perry had made a little comment earlier in the program. You were talking about some of the nursing uh, things and 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 healthcare uh, uh, you know training that you do. I was asking about types of skills you teach to nurses for hand to hand. So we can get that we can oh, get cool. to that in yeah. next week. Uh, talk a little more detail about that. So if you're on the call, well, and you I have questions. Have... Get them I'll get on and I'll copy page. those uh, questions as well. So, uh, Perry, I will. Uh, I'll get in touch with you one on one. Use your email address should be on your comment. So, um, I'll, I'll get in touch with you directly about that. Uh, that because it's going to be more applicable to him than other people. So, absolutely. Yeah. And I'll try to get back to everyone at least with a, a cursory get you started kind of uh, answer. And then we can touch on these things uh, in, in upcoming episodes. But they really are going to kick us off the service here pretty soon. So yeah. uh, we, need, we need to wrap this up. Excellent. Well, thanks again, everybody, for joining us here. And, uh, and you as well, sir, uh, doing this on the road. I appreciate that, uh, even though you're traveling. So thank you. Yep. No, no worries. Okay. Well, we'll talk to everybody here uh, next week. Stay safe. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening to Kudan. The podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Sheehan Miller, or to submit a question or discussion topic to the show, call 570-884-1118 or visit warrior-concepts-online.com.